Okay, we are in the book of Exodus forever. So if you have a, uh, a Bible with you, you might want to turn to Exodus chapter 20. Uh, if you don't have a... Oh, this is rickety, isn't it? Good grief. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, don't worry. The words will appear as if by magic on the screen behind me. I'm going to control it from my phone, the wonders of modern technology. Okay, we... Um, do you know what? I'm just going to pray, first of all. So here we go. Jesus, um, actually, why, rather than just me pray, why don't you all just take a moment, uh, and I'm going to pray, but whilst I'm praying, when I do this every week, I do do this every week, it's an opportunity not just for me to pray for us, but you to pray for yourself. So I'm going to pray, but just in your own hearts, maybe just ask God to help you to, more than anything, when we come together uh, and read the Word together, we want it to feed us, to feed our souls. Um, and this week, to be honest, we're working through a, a bit of the Bible, which is a bit more tricky. And in some ways, it may seem perhaps an easy verse, in other ways, it's going to seem a very hard verse. So just as I pray, why don't you just pray for yourself? that God would speak to you and that you remain open-hearted and listening to what he has to say to you. Jesus, every time we come to your words, uh, we never want to open it up and bring all our preconceived ideas to it uh, and let it say what we want it to say. Uh, we want it to say to us what you have to say to us. We want it to shape our lives and to guide us. And more than anything, we want it to Bring us to you, Jesus. That's our prayer. That's our heart today is we want to know you more. So we pray, Holy Spirit, be at work amongst us. Guide our hearts. Lead us to you, we pray. Amen. Amen. So we've been working through the book of Exodus. Uh, and we're in Exodus chapter 20. And we've been slowly, week by week, going through the Ten Commandments. We're at command number six. So I'm going to read the first two verses it says, and God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And we've been reading these first two verses every time we come to the Ten Commandments to make sure we put it in the appropriate context that these are commands given to a, a people that God has just rescued out of slavery. He's calling them into a new life, into his good life, and then he gives us some commandments to follow, and the one we're going to look at today is very short. He says, you shall not murder. And in, it's so short that even in the original language, it would have just been two words, not murder or murder not. It's pretty straightforward. It's pretty simple. You might think it's even so simple, then that's pretty much job done. Okay, we just get that message. You're probably thinking this is pretty easy. I've never murdered anybody. You're probably thinking, hopefully, there's nobody here that's ever murdered anyone. And if there is, then perhaps you're beginning to shuffle nervously in your seat. You might think, surely, surely we don't need the Bible to tell us this, or some preacher man to tell us not to murder. Surely this is something that's kind of innate, it's ingrained within us. Surely we should just all automatically know this. It's just obvious that we just don't murder people 
We don't need the Bible to kind of write this down to tell us. And this is one of those areas where you would think that Christianity would agree with pretty much everybody else. You know, you could, you could bring in a kind of intellectual, contemporary, modern atheist to stand here, and he would say, yeah, no, I, I agree. We shouldn't, we shouldn't murder people. Um, people will, will, are going to kind of agree on that. But what's really important to understand is what is the, the basis, the foundation of our belief, what it's built upon. Uh, with your house, your apartment, the foundation it's built upon is important. Particularly in Amsterdam, where the city's basically just a big swamp, and your house is pretty much just floating, and has these poles, these piles driven down into the ground. Uh, and if they rot away, then your house is just, just gonna sink or go a bit wonky anyway. The foundations of a house, particularly here in Amsterdam, are very important. And for us as a church, the foundations, for you as an individual, the foundations of what you believe about life, about the world around you, about what it means to follow Jesus, about what it means to do your job, to be a good husband, a good father, a good employee, the foundations of that are incredibly important because if you don't get the foundations right, you'll end up with a wonky building, or a wonky life, or a wonky way of viewing the world. Because every society, every worldview, I mean, uh, the way that you see the world, or the way that the society sees the world, or the way our city sees the world, it's built upon something. There's something there that it stands upon. There are things that are, that I guess you could call them sacred. Do you know that word sacred? A sacred thing is something that you, um, you, you hold on to it. You could take everything else away and you would hold on to that thing. It's so important to you. You would, you would die for it because it's that important to you. You would hold it above everything else. And even in a secular society, a society without God, a city that would say, well, we don't need God anymore, there are still things that are sacred that you can't touch, that you can't change, that you can't criticize. And for, for us as Christians, we believe, uh, our belief is based on what we read in this book, the Bible, the Word of God. This is something that's important to us. The teachings of Jesus are our authority, our absolute authority. And anybody that says, oh no, we don't need that bit of the Bible, we can just subtract that bit, we can ignore that bit, we'll change the meaning of that bit, we should be very wary of those people. The Bible tells us not to do that. And if you're here and you don't believe in Jesus, you might think that the idea of some sort of absolute authority, even that, that phrase, authority, some kind of absolute moral truth, will make you shudder, you think, ugh. How can anybody believe that? How can anybody believe there's something that's absolute, above and beyond us, that we should believe in? It's a terrifying thought, surely. But as I said, even in a secular society, there are things that are, are sacred, that you can't touch. And we talk about this all the time, but in our city, perhaps the main thing that is sacred, that you can't touch, is the idea of individual freedom. That you get to do what you want, and think what you want, and be who you want, and nobody gets to tell you otherwise. So to illustrate this, there was a story um, 
Or there was a, an interview I saw with a lady a few, a few months ago who she claimed that she was in a relationship with a ghost, as in, in a spiritual, invisible being. And she'd actually married this ghost. She'd had a ceremony, she'd invited her friends and family, and she'd married a ghost. And yet the interview with her is they couldn't question her, they could, you know, they could ask her about it, but they couldn't say, well, surely you're, you're crazy. You know, have, you, have you looked for any kind of help? You know, maybe you need to go and see someone who can, can assess your mental state of mind. But they couldn't ask those questions. They couldn't send her to a church to say, well, maybe you need someone to pray for you. This might not be a very good thing. But they weren't allowed to question it, because if she says that she's in a relationship with a ghost, well, she's, she's a right to believe that. She's got her own individual freedoms. Who are we to question whether or not she's in a relationship with a ghost or not? And the, unfortunately, this can create, that's obviously one problem, but there are lots of problems this creates. When the world around us holds human life with such a high value and human autonomy, the sense that what's most important is what you think, when you hold that to be the absolute truth, that creates some issues that you need to be aware of. Because what you're essentially saying is that the thing that really is the authority, the truth, the thing that is really sacred is me and what I think. Because if nobody can question that, if nobody can criticize that, for fear of offending you, and you can't criticize anyone else for fear of offending them, that's become a sacred thing. You've basically put yourself, or they've put themselves in the place of God. I'm the ultimate authority on who I am, what I do, what I want to be. I'm the authority. No one else gets to say otherwise. And the idea of any kind of belief or religion can only be tolerated if it submits itself to that. So Christianity is only valid then, people would say, is if it submits itself to what the world around us says. And if it disagrees with what we like to think, then it's invalid, it's wrong, and we must ignore it. That's what our city would think about Christianity. Christianity only has a place in society if it does what we think it should do. If it submits to our authority of what we think in our hearts, it doesn't matter what the Bible says, we'll just edit it, we'll just change it, we'll just ignore the bits that don't fit with our perspective. We're basically saying that we're, we're remaking the Bible, we're remaking our faith, we're remaking Jesus in our image, what we would like him to be like. Actually, Christianity is not like that at all. Because Christianity has also a very high view of human life. So high, in fact, that it says that we're made in the image of God. You can't have a higher view of human life than that. We're made in God's image. That means that human life is precious, is important, is of immense value, but all of it submits to God and who he is, because we're made in his image. And that means we should treat ourselves and we should treat everybody else as people who are made in God's image. As though he's, he's their very sons and daughters. As though he's their property. 
We should care for people and we should love people because they're made in his image. That's the foundation of our belief, that we're all made in the image of God. And that's immensely important. And the wonderful thing about this command is you can, as we come onto these, there's a few now which say, you shall not, you shall not. And obviously that sounds negative, but it's a, a negative command to release us into positive action. Because although it's negative, you shall not murder, the flip side of it is that we should do everything we possibly can to preserve life, to further life, to bless life around us, to see that all of us get the best quality of life we can, that we care for people, that we love people, that we seek their protection. So although it's a, it's, it has negative language, it's actually incredibly positive. This command sends the church into the world to care for the world around us, to care for the vulnerable, the needy, to see that life is furthered and bettered as best we can. But if you don't hold that we're made in the image of God, then ultimately what is most sacred, what is most important is not God, but us, and what we think, what we believe. And that means that who, who then decides the value of a life? Well, you do, if you, if you hold that belief. You get to choose whether life is important or not. And we can say, well, that, that's okay, that's fine, because we'll all just make the, the decision then that we won't murder. But the problem is, it's this wonky house on bad foundations, that when pressure comes upon that, it begins to sink and lean and crumble. And actually what happens is that human life begins to lose its sanctity, its dignity, its importance. And sadly, we can see that happening in the society around us, that human life is being robbed of its value, that we're not treating it as we should treat human life. And there are some obvious fruits of this. Some of these are gonna be a bit painful, but it's important that we, we work through them nonetheless. First of all would be, would be suicide. It's, it's to have, um, I'm sure probably some people here have at some point in their life had suicidal thoughts. And what that is, is you're, essentially you're forgetting the immense value you have as someone made in the image of God. And you're taking your value and worth and what you think about yourself. And we all suffer from that from time to time, don't we? We've all had moments where we just feel horrible, terrible about ourselves. And we're basing our value, our importance, on what we think about ourselves, and not on the fact that we're children of God, that we're made in his image. Obviously, that has terrible consequences. Another one is, we talked about this a few weeks ago, is the issue of euthanasia, where we treat old people or ourselves, and we get to that age as just an inconvenience, a drain on society, because we're not, we're not seeing them as those who carry the image of God. When we put people in the place of God rather than themselves, then they get to decide who dies and who lives. And we don't get to make that decision. 
We don't get to judge when it's someone's time to go or when it's our time to go. That's God's decision. In the Second World War, when uh, the Netherlands was under Nazi occupation, some of the greatest heroes of the resistance were the doctors and nurses, many of whom were Jews, who had remarkable stories of how they would do whatever they can to, to be committed to their cause, committed to their work as a doctor and nurse. So they would do some remarkable things. There's many stories of them where to stop people being sent to the concentration camps, they would fake x-rays and do all sorts of things to protect people from getting sent off to the concentration camps. They would hide uh, uh, allied soldiers and airmen when they landed in the Netherlands. They would hide them away. They would protect them. But one of the most courageous things that they did, and was recorded at the time, celebrated after the war of their courage, was that the Nazis um, told them that they should not care for the old and the elderly and the, and the terminally sick. The Nazis told them to let them die because it was a waste of resources. And they refused to obey those orders. And time and again, they carried on caring for those who were terminally ill, caring for the elderly, because they didn't want to let them die, because they thought that was wrong. Even though the Nazis were saying, no, get rid of them, just, they don't matter anymore, they're just a drain, they're a waste. They said, no, we won't do that. And they stood, and they were commended after the war as these heroes of resistance. And yet, in 2001, it was here in our nation that they were the first country to legalize euthanasia. That's terrifying. The, uh, the journalist Malcolm Muggeridge, who's got a wonderful name, hasn't he? Malcolm Muggeridge. He said, it took only one generation to transform a war crime into an act of compassion. Those are haunting words. But it's when you don't treat human life with that dignity, that value, we're made in God's image, the foundation's wonky, the house begins to crumble. Perhaps the most difficult issue is that of abortion. And we live in a, in a progressive society, as people would call it. So the, the TV show Friends, which is on Netflix at the moment, is a great example of this, that when it was first broadcast, I remember watching it when I was first broadcast, which people in my community group were laughing at me a few weeks ago, because you remember when it was first on TV. Yeah, all right, leave me alone. <laughs> but when it was first broadcast, it was seen as, as a kind of progressive TV show, because the way they talked about sex and relationships in such a free, liberated way, it was seen as a progressive thing. Whereas now, people are criticizing it because of some of the jokes that they make. Because of the way they treat sex, actually, even in the TV program. They're saying it's not progressive anymore. They're saying it's old-fashioned because society has moved on in what it thinks about those things. And the, I, I strongly suspect that in a few hundred years' time, maybe less than that, the same way that we can look back at slavery and uh, how we treat people with a different color of skin to us, I think we'll look back and we'll think, I can't believe that we treated the unborn in the same way. And the, the thing is, it's, 
it's a painful thing to talk about because, <laughs> to be honest, often the way the church talks about this uh, is in a cold and callous way. Um, and you might, uh, that's, that might be your perspective. You might think, oh, I don't want to hear anyone talk about abortion because the way the church speaks about this is just full of anger and hate. Um, and that, sadly, that's true. And I don't want to speak about it in that way. And that happens often because, because Christians wrongly believe that the women who are involved in it do it for cold and callous reasons, which isn't true. That's, that's the reality of it. But for, I asked my mum about this because she's been, I think probably what best just to read what she said. She's been involved in uh, counseling women both pre- and post-abortion for years. And, uh, she said we, we shouldn't, uh, the church should never make them feel condemned or judged. As most of them already feel like that. Um, she said it's also about, um, she said, sorry, let me just find the right bit. Basically, her point here is, I'm not going to read the whole message because it made more sense when I read it at home. There's not a pithy quote to pull from. But the point my mom was trying to make is that the vast majority of women, they do it because they feel trapped. You know, they're stuck in a corner. They feel vulnerable or helpless. Often, actually, sadly, because the, the man has abandoned them, has left them, or they feel pressurized to take that commitment. You know, it's a horrible, painful thing. So we shouldn't treat women in a cold, callous way, but in compassion and love. Seeking to, to understand the decision, the painful, horrible decision that they're trying to make. We were trying to counsel and wisely support them to make a good decision, but to say, look, we're going to be there for you. We're going to help you. That should be the church's response to abortion whenever we find it. Okay. The next one, the next fruit of this, I guess, is one that we're all guilty of, is that of, I guess, just neglect that uh, we, we break this commandment when we see the poor and vulnerable around us and we don't do anything. When we, we just um, have all our money and we keep it to ourselves, not seeking to serve and help those around us who are vulnerable. Because we're not seeking, we're not acting out, as I was talking about earlier, that positive element of this commandment. We're not seeking to further and better life when we just stockpile all our resources when we just spend more and more, get more and more possessions, more and more things to make us happy, not caring about whether other people are happy or getting anything out of life at all. We're all guilty of dishonoring life. But the thing is that Jesus, as he has a habit of doing, he takes this commandment and he pushes it even further. Because he says this in, uh, let me find the right verse here. 
Matthew chapter 5. He says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. So he's saying to the people listening, basically, you've, you've heard, you've read the sixth commandment. But he says, But I say to you that everyone with, who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, the judge to the guard, and you'll be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out till you've paid the last penny. Strong words from Jesus there. Because he takes this command, and where we might, as Christians, we might be tempted to take this command, you shall not murder, and point it, and put it on placards, and shout at other people, and condemn people. Jesus takes this command, and he points it right back at all of us. And he points it right at our hearts. He says, the issue is what's going on in here. If any of us have any kind of anger or hatred against a brother or sister, family member, anyone we come across, then we're just as guilty of breaking this commandment. If you've been, you know, if you've been on a bike cycling in Amsterdam, you've probably broken this commandment. <laughs> I know I have. Jesus uses the phrase here, you fool, or in Aramaic, it would have been the word raka. I've not said raka to anyone when I've been cycling, but I've said a few other choice words. I read a, a, a Bible commentary, which is a book that gives some kind of deeper explanations of the Bible, and he was explaining this word, and he, the, the way he tried to translate it was as good for nothing or empty head. Those were the best insults he could think of, which I think that Bible commenter needs to get out into the real world. Because I've never been cycling along and someone's ridden into me and said, you good for nothing. <laughs> you know, that's like an insult from the movie in the 1920s, isn't it? But we, we could cycle here today, we could get knocked off our bike and either say or at least think some very angry things. And then we could walk through this door, we could throw our arms in the air and start singing songs of worship to Jesus. You know, we could get angry at our kids because they're not brushing their teeth I did that this morning. We could mutter frustratingly about our husband or wife. And then we could walk in here and, oh, Jesus, you're amazing. <laughs> this is deep hypocrisy within us that we could, uh, we could treat another human life in a very dishonorable way without any dignity. Treat them as they're just an irritation people that are made in the image of God, just, just an annoyance. And then we come in here and we give God all this honor and exaltation, but we don't give it to other people. That's what Jesus is saying to us. He's saying there's a problem in our hearts. Actually, elsewhere in the New Testament, in Romans, it takes this and it kind of distills it down even further. It says, uh, owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, 
You should not steal, you should not covet. And any other commandment are all summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If we take that viewpoint, it totally transforms our lives. That can totally transform society around us. We say, I'm going to love my brother and sister in the same way as I love myself. I'm going to treat them in the same way. I'm going to respect them. I'm going to honor them. It's revolutionary. Yet Jesus takes it even further in Matthew 5. Because he says this, You've heard it that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Goodness, that's even stronger language. See, it might be easy to love your neighbor, but to love your enemies, those who persecute you, it's the command that Jesus gives to us. When he's saying love your neighbor, he just, it's everybody. No matter how many times they knock you off your bike. We should love our neighbors, love our enemies. And the wonderful thing is that though we're imperfect, we come to a Jesus who is perfect in every way. Though we fail, and none of us, no one here can say, I've never been angry. In a sense, we've all committed murder in our hearts in some form or other. We've all broken this commandment in so many different ways. But we come to one who didn't. For us, he didn't break that commandment. He lived the perfect life. It says in Isaiah 53, looking forward to what's going to happen to Jesus, to the Messiah, it says, He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressions, yet he bore the sin of many. So where we deserve death for our murderous hearts, he was murdered for us so that we go free. It's wonderful. That's such good news for all of us. No matter what way you feel that you've broken this commandment, all of us, if you are a follower of Jesus, you get to go free now because he was murdered for you. But even more beautifully, it then goes on, it finishes there. He bore the sin of many. And it says, and he makes intercession for the transgressors, or he prays for those who sinned against him. And we discover what this means when we go into Luke, and we, we find we, this Luke 23 takes us right to the cross, and we see Jesus on the cross. And then he prays this wonderful prayer. He prays, for, he intercedes for his transgressors. He says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. <laughs> and what he's doing is he's on the cross and he's looking down at those that are murdering him. And he's, he asks his father to forgive them. Wow. <laughs> That's what it means to love your enemies. 
He forgave those that even murdered him. It's powerful. And yet, wonderfully, is that those words don't stop there. But now they, they echo through all eternity. And they come right to us. And for all the ways that we've failed, all the times we've, uh, we've not loved life of others, where we've treated other people with contempt and anger, with no dignity, with no respect, where we've been selfish, we've always sought to have our own way, where we've committed murder in our own hearts. Yet Jesus prays for us that we would know forgiveness, that we would know freedom. Let me pray. Jesus, I thank you that those words do echo through all of eternity. That for the, the old man lying in his bed, terminally ill, um, trying to decide what he wants to do with his life. Thank you, Father, that he can have forgiveness in you. Thank you for the, the teenage girl who's made a terrible decision that she can find forgiveness in you. Thank you for all of us who, in so many different ways, in the way that we hoard our possessions and we don't care about the poor and vulnerable, where we put our life above other people, we can know your forgiveness. And I pray you would help us today to, to repent, to receive your conviction and to say, God, I'm sorry for the ways I've sinned. I wanna know your forgiveness. Help us to put our trust in you and to follow you. I pray for anyone here for these, that these words, this message that has been particularly painful, I pray that they would know your compassion and your grace, that they would know uh, condemnation, but they would know uh, sweet conviction that leads us to repentance and freedom in you. I pray that we would all know your wonderful forgiveness and know that you were murdered for us, that for all our imperfections, that you were perfect, that you died for all those things, and you rose again, and now we have wonderful new life for you as new creations. Thank you for your grace. Amen.